Good morning. We are very glad to have you join us in worship this morning here at First Christian Church, especially if you're a guest with us. Uh, we call you a guest and not a visitor uh, because vis- visitors just pass through. Uh, guests are people that stay a while and we prepare for. Uh, so we're glad you're here because we've prepared for you to be here. So uh, we welcome you if you're a guest. We want to especially warmly welcome you. Uh, we also want to welcome those of you who have been here a long time because uh, we're glad you're here again another Sunday to uh, worship the Lord together with the body of Christ. So we love to see new folks with us because connecting people to a vibrant and growing relationship with Christ is why we exist. It's why we exist for people who are within the body of Christ and for those who are not a part of the body of Christ. Connecting one another and others to a growing relationship with Christ is why we exist. So we're glad that you're here to continue to develop that relationship with God. If you've got a Bible with you, and I hope you do, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians, the first chapter. We're going to start there before we jump back into Genesis. 2 Corinthians, the first chapter. Verse 20 is where we'll be. We're just going to look at that one verse in just a couple minutes here. Uh, you may notice we've got some younger folks with us today. Today is what we call Family Sunday. And uh, we value intergenerational uh, relationships. We value relationships between young and old. And so we call what we do here intergenerational worship because we want the young folks to be here with older folks to see what it's like to worship in spirit and in truth. For us as adults to be models to the kids with us. So if they don't know where Second Corinthians is, try to show them. That will be helpful for them. I want to draw your attention to the inside of the worship guide, the inside of the worship guide. On the bottom of the first inside page, you'll see the upcoming sermons and texts. Um, Starting next week, uh, we jump into uh, a series called Your Turn. And your turn is where we've taken, uh, taken ideas submitted from the congregation for the month of July. We're going to preach through a bunch of different things uh, in the month of July. Uh, one of the big ones was a request to go through all of Romans 8, uh, which is a pretty heady passage. It's pretty complex. And so we're going to go through Romans 8 for three weeks, and then uh, we're going to have uh, uh, Tommy at the end of that third week sort of wrap up Romans 8 for us. Mark Liebert's going to preach the next week, and then I'll preach the ne- next week after that. Uh, the one that's not listed there for this series is sort of a hodgepodge of a few different questions, like what does it mean to be constantly in prayer, as Scripture talks about. It says pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Uh, so, so we're going to answer that question. We're going to answer a question about what happened to the disciples, uh, to the followers of God, the first followers of Jesus, after Pentecost, after Jesus ascended back into heaven. What did they do? What did their lives look like? We're going to answer that question, as well as um, a question of what does, what does truth mean in a world of relative uh, ideas? What's the importance of truth, absolute truth, in a world that's pluralistic, that has uh, various options for things that we can believe in? So we're going to talk about those kinds of things through the month of July. So you can read ahead and be ready for next week by looking at Romans 8. Uh, Just read through that a few times and then uh, maybe appreciate the, uh, the importance of that chapter as we dive in there. Smartphone users, you can follow along on the Uversion app. Uh, just search under live events. And we also have a number of blanks on the inside of the uh, sermon notes there for you to follow along today. 
So that's where you can uh, follow along. Lots of scripture texts to look up, and I've listed them there in order that we'll be looking them up so you can kind of keep up with where we are in the message today. We at First Christian believe that the Word of God is adequate to feed and equip us. That it is where we learn about who God is and what he has for us and where we learn who we are. And so uh, before we jump into the word, let's go ahead and pray and ask for God's leading for our time together. Indeed, Father, we, we do believe that your holy word is a gift given to the body of Christ. You've already given us the gift of the lived word in your son, Jesus Christ, and you've given us the written word. And so, Lord, we want to have a a vibrant, a growing relationship with Christ because of our interaction with the written word. And we know that that requires the Holy Spirit. That requires you teaching us, convicting us, comforting us, sending us your counselor, the Holy Spirit, so that we would continue to have a mind and a heart that is shaped by the truth of your word. So, Lord, we ask that you would feed us, that you would equip us, that our time in your word today would excite us about the work that you are doing in the world. Because we can see in the pages of Genesis that you've set forth for us a Messiah. You've set aside your own son on our behalf. So, Father, help us to marvel at that, that marvelous truth, that wonderful truth that you came to sacrifice yourself for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, it is Family Sunday, so I want anybody who is in fifth grade or below to raise your hand. Fifth graders and below, raise your hand. Raise your hand up high so everybody else can see that you... Yes, there we go, Isaac Coulter. Uh, yes, get your hands up there. Very good. It's great to see young folks. Thank you. You can all put your hands down now. <laughs> Later on. Um, we're glad to have you here because what we want to do is, is just at the beginning of my sermon, I want to speak to you especially for just a couple minutes, okay? Because um, what I'm going to say about this story of this man I'm going to talk about sort of tells us what the Genesis passages we're looking at today are all about. I want to show you this picture of this man named Arturo Toscanini. Arturo Toscanini. He's uh, not from America originally, but he was a well-known conductor of music. A conductor of music is one of those guys that has this, they call it a baton. It's just a fancy word for stick. He, he has this little stick, and he waves the stick. And when he waves the stick, all the people who are playing the instruments in the orchestra know what to do when, okay? So he's a very famous musical conductor. He led a big orchestra. It's just like a big band, a big orchestra that has violins, that has cellos, that has trumpets, it has drums. So he leads this big orchestra. And, and Toscanini was known for being one of the greatest conductors in the world. And he loved his I mean, he was, he was passionate about his music. He loved to conduct the music. Well, there was one time when he was conducting a particular piece of music, a particular symphony, they call it. This piece of music was, was written by a man named Beethoven. Does anybody who is fifth grade or below know the, the name Beethoven? A few of you here and there? All right. You better raise your hand, kid. No. Um, uh, Beethoven was known as one of the greatest 
musicians, the greatest writers of music that ever lived. And so Toscanini was leading the orchestra to play this wonderful Beethoven piece. And when they were done with this piece, all of the people stood up. I mean, they just, they, they clapped. There was a standing ovation. They were whistling. Some of them were, were yang, yay, saying, yay, Toscanini, yay, yay, orchestra. You know, they were very excited about it. Well, when that cheering finally died down, it finally got quiet. Toscanini, the conductor of the orchestra, he turned to the orchestra, which would usually be back here, and he whispered to them. He was, he was almost angry. They thought that he was going to yell something at them. But he whispered something at them, and he said, Gentlemen, gentlemen, he said, I am nothing. You see, they were cheering about Toscanini, yay, Toscanini, yay, orchestra. They were cheering for him, but he said, I am nothing. You are nothing. And then he said, but Beethoven, Beethoven is everything. He is everything. He wanted to remind them that even though these people were cheering in the crowd for them because they played the music, he wanted to remind them that it was really about the beautiful music. And that's why people were cheering. This is an important lesson we all need to learn about life. All of the beautiful music points us to something. All of the the birds, the beautiful birds and the trees and the sky and all of creation around us points us to something. All of the birds and the trees and how much you love playing with your toys, even the, the love that you have in your heart for your mommy and your daddy, that points you to something. The message today and in this book is that all of those things point you to Jesus. All of those things point us to Jesus. One of the most important things that we have points us to Jesus, and that's the Bible. And this is where we find out about Jesus. So I want you to look there for just a second at an important verse in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the first chapter. If you can't find it, have an adult next to you help you. 2 Corinthians, the first chapter. And this verse is going to tell us about how everything points us to Jesus. Everything good and lovely and beautiful points us to Jesus. It says this. It says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That means that everything that God promised is shown to us. All of the good things that God promises us is shown to us because of Jesus, through Jesus. So when you ask, God, are you real? You know, sometimes you wonder, God, are you real? Because I, I don't see you. I don't, I, don't, I don't see you like I see my mommy and daddy. When you ask God, are you real, then you can look at Jesus and you can say, yes, God is real because he sent me Jesus. When you ask God, God, do you love me? You can say, yes, God, I know you love me because you can point to Jesus. So the answer of all of God's promises is yes in Jesus. And this is where we learn that truth. So I want you this week to make sure you have a Bible with your name in it and you read that and you learn about Jesus in that Bible. Thanks for listening, elementary kids. You've done well. You've been paying attention. Good job. Scripture 
is just like that message that I just talked to the kids about, that lesson. Scripture calls Jesus the first and the last. It points us to him. All of Scripture, if it's not about Jesus, then is a waste of pages and effort. All your study, if it's not about Jesus, is a waste of your time. It calls him the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the alphabet, the beginning and the end. It calls him the author and perfecter of our faith. And, and we've spent a good eight months in Genesis, a good eight months learning about the various characters and stories of their lives. And so it's important that we end this series with the big picture of Genesis, which is the first blank in your outline. The big picture of Genesis is that Genesis is ultimately about Jesus, the Messiah. It's ultimately about Jesus, the Messiah. Sure, it's about how you were made and how the birds came to exist and, and the purpose of our lives. But ultimately, all of those things find their fulfillment and their aim and their goal in Jesus. And everything we point to today in our passage, in, in the scriptures, will point us to Jesus. We don't have time to look at all the many, many places in Genesis. Uh, but I want to highlight three of them especially. Because, because Christ is the grand theme, he's the major thread, he's the common thread throughout all of Scripture, the Old and New Testaments. In fact, in a very real sense, you cannot interpret Scripture correctly. You cannot interpret any passage of Scripture correctly if it doesn't find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And there's this, this sort of common idea among believers that the Old Testament is... is sort of nice, but we really learn about Jesus in the New Testament. And that's partially true because most fulfillment of Jesus comes to light in the New Testament. But, but, we cannot dismiss Genesis and the Old Testament as unimportant because the Messiah is all over the pages of Genesis and the Old Testament. There's an old saying that's going to be in your uh, blanks here that, that reminds us about sort of the various ways that Scripture interprets Jesus, the common thread throughout. It says this, The Old Testament, where we are today, is Jesus predicted. We're going to talk mostly about that today. The Old Testament is Jesus predicted. The Gospels are Jesus revealed. Acts is Jesus preached. The epistles, Jesus explained, and the revelation, Jesus expected. Those five uh, blanks there for your outline. Jesus predicted, revealed, preached, explained, and expected. It's a good way for you to sort of think about how Scripture fits together. Uh, write that on, in your Bible in the front there. It's sort of an interpretive framework. So when you come to a certain part of Scripture, you think, oh, this, this in Acts is where Jesus is preached. This is where the gospel first becomes proclaimed by the church. That's a good way to think about Acts, for example. So, so just a little tidbit there for you. Three major things we want to say today. The first is this. Christ is present at creation as creator God. Christ is present at creation as creator God. And those are the next couple blanks there uh, that will be on screen. Christ is present at creation as creator God. There's a ton we could go through, but we're going to make, highlight these three things uh, today. Let's look at John 1 to start out with Christ being present at creation. John 1, 1 to 3. John 1, 1 to 3, and then we'll jump back into Genesis. If you take John 1 and add it to Genesis 1, you'll get what we're saying, Christ is present at creation. The Apostle John makes it clear here in the opening words of John that, that the creation account in Genesis 1 is full of Christ. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. He was with God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, everything that, that, that exists on the planet, Christ was a part of that creation. Christ was present at Creator. So right off the bat, according to the Bible, Christ is present at creation. If you take John 1 plus Genesis 1, that's where we get there. So look at Genesis 1, 1 to 2, and we'll look at those verses. Take John 1 plus Genesis 1, and that's how we get there. It says this, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. Now the earth was form without form and void. Some of your versions may say empty or formless. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So we already have God in verse 1, God the Father in verse 1. Now verse 2 says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We have God the Father, God the Spirit, and because of John and other things that we could point to, one that we'll talk about in a second, Christ was present at creation as well. God the Son also present at creation. Jump down to 126. It's a famous verse that talks about being created in the image of God, in the likeness of God. It says this, God said, pause, God said, if, if in John 1 that we just read, the word, that phrase, the word, if the word is Christ there in, first, in the first chapter of John, add that to what's going on here, and he is present at creation, then Christ is present when God speaks here in 126. I'll continue to make that argument in just a second. It says, God said, let us make man in our, not singular, plural, our image, meaning all three persons of the Trinity are there. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, Jesus is here even in this image concept. Christ is present in this creating of man and woman as being made in the likeness of God. And here's why. Simple explanation. Do you have skin and bones? Yes. Did Jesus have skin and bones? Yes. Are we made in his image? Yes. So, therefore, Christ is present here in Genesis 1.26 when it speaks of being made in his image, and, and this image is what we have. We are, in part, made in his image. It means other things, too. But that's part of what it means. Now, Christ is present at creation. So that's one thing, a fundamental thing we have to get about Genesis before we move on to talk about other pieces of Scripture or, or, or passages that we'll get to. We have to get that straight in our heads because it's, it's part of the important thing of, of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Now, second blank, the first gospel. Turn to Genesis 3.15. Some of you will remember us talking about this uh, a few months ago. Genesis 3.15 is where we're going to uh, head next. This is where we find the first major prophecy in Genesis, the first major prophecy of the Messiah in Genesis and in all of Scripture. And we call it the first gospel. Uh, that's the word proto-evangelium. Uh, you say proto-evangelium if you'd like to sound like a nerd and uh, throw that word around and impress people. Uh, it means first gospel is all it means. That's the uh, next blank there. This is super cool to me because immediately after, immediately following Adam and Eve's fall from grace, immediately after they rebelled against their own creator, God 
makes provision to deliver them. He tells them, I'm going to take care of you. A deliverer will come, and he does that in 3.15. This is where God is cursing the serpent. Speaking to the serpent, serpent, he says this, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, that's a fancy old school word for a hostility or, or long-term struggle. I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent, and the woman. I will put enmity, struggle, strife between you and the woman, and between your offspring, in other words, the serpent's offspring, and her offspring. So there's going to be this, this struggle between Satan and humanity. It's going to be a long-term struggle. And then he says this, and this is huge. The next word, he. If you're a circler like me, circle he, draw a little arrow and put Jesus, exclamation, Jesus. He, that's a singular he, not a plural. He shall bruise your head. He's still speaking to the serpent. He's cursing the serpent. He says, he shall bruise your head. And the bruising of the head is a deadly injury. Uh, That same word bruise could be crush or strike. And so God is saying to the serpent, my own son, ultimately, will bruise your head, will crush your head. That's a deadly injury. And yet, in your own, he's speaking to Satan, in your own struggle against my creation, in your own struggle against humanity, you will simply bruise his heel. Now, even crushing a heel is not a deadly blow. <laughs> it means you can't walk. Uh, Jacob learned that lesson. But, but, but the bruise here is the same word as strike or even crush. So, the one he will provide the deliverance from the sin that Adam and Eve just experienced against God. So, check this out because it, it's super cool that at this point in Genesis, Adam and Eve already understood. They already understood because God had just told them that one of Eve's own offspring, the word offspring is the same as seed, one of Eve's own offspring, Adam and Eve, already understood that their seed would end up defeating the serpent. One of their own children would undo the brokenness and the frustration and and the effects of the fall. They had sinned and were ashamed. But now there was going to be a deliverer, and it was going to be from their own seed. And while they didn't know the name Jesus, or they didn't understand the word Messiah, they didn't know what an anointed one meant, they literally thought that their child was going to be the anointed one. And and they were right in that, just many thousands of years too early. So Christ is present right here in Genesis at the very beginning in 3.15. He was part of creation and he was present here in the first explanation of the gospel. And this is, uh, this is super important because, because for all of Scripture following, in a sense it's an explanation of 3.15. It's called the mother prophecy. There in 315, that first gospel idea is the mother prophecy because it gives birth to all of the rest of the promises that follow. So when in first, I'm sorry, second Corinthians one, when we talk about all the promises being fulfilled, they're all yes in Jesus. It becomes that because of this kind of prophecy. No other promise of God makes sense without Christ as a part of it. First two things there. The third is this, Isaac. 
We're just going to hit a few highlights. Isaac as the prototype of Jesus. Isaac as the prototype of Jesus. Prototype just means the first type. We're going to look at Abraham and his offspring because Abraham was one of the first to whom God said, I will bless you, your name will be great, I'm making this covenant with you. Let's look at that covenant in Genesis 12. Jump to Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. Perhaps the most famous place in Scripture that that starts that covenant between God and his people. This is a, Genesis 12 is a, is a passage that should be emblazoned in your memory. Genesis 12, 2 to 3, it says this, I will make of you a great nation. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Bless you to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now even in this little passage, let's leave it up on the screen for a couple of seconds here. Even in this little passage at the end here is Christ. In, in, in a small way that may not be readily apparent at first. That little phrase, in you, toward the end of verse 3 there. That little phrase, in you, is picked up by Paul in the New Testament. And he uses it all over the place to speak of the ways that the promises of God are fulfilled. Your righteousness only happens in Christ. Every promise of God we experience only happens as a fulfillment in Christ. And so he picks up that little phrase, in you, and he speaks of it being in Christ. And that was ultimately the meaning even of Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Sure, Abraham's own offspring would be a part of that line. But the ultimate fulfillment of that line would be Jesus. Now let's see how that works a little bit in Abraham's life. Turn to Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is a famous account of of Abraham being asked by God to go sacrifice Isaac. And we'll see how how Isaac is is a bit of a prototype of Christ in Genesis. Pick up at verse 1. Verse 1, Genesis 22. We'll read a number of verses here. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, This is God speaking again, Take your son, if you're an underliner or a circler, circle this, your only Son, take your son, your only son. That's a phrase you should, you should know from John 3.16, your only son. The reason John 3.16 picks that up is this verse, is this verse. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Many scholars believe, though we don't really know, many of them believe that that the mountains that he asked Abraham to go to to sacrifice his son Isaac were the same region where Jesus would be sacrificed outside Jerusalem. Same region. Might have been the same mountain, but probably at least the same region. So Christ is present even here. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. It sounds like he rose the next morning. It's a, it's, it's a statement about his faith. He immediately follows God. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. 
And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I want to jump to Hebrews 11 for just a second because it helps shed some light on Genesis 22. Keep your thumb in Genesis 22. We'll go to Hebrews 11:17 to 19 if you want to turn there. Here's what we're going to try to talk about in this passage. I think Abraham's faith here is so strong that he thinks that God will not actually make him kill Isaac, that he will provide a way out. And even if he does have him actually sacrifice his own son, he will rise from the dead somehow, that, that, that God will provide a way out. He had such faith in the idea that God promised delivery that he thought that I will be willing to sacrifice my own son to obey and to be faithful. So because Scripture interprets Scripture, we can take Genesis 22 and add to it Hebrews 11 to give us some meaning for what's going on in Genesis 22. Scripture interprets Scripture. So Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, the promises of Christ ultimately, the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son. There's that phrase again. Only son. In the Greek, it's monogenes, one genes, his only genes. It's the same exact phrase used in Genesis 2 and in John 3.16. Offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He had the kind of faith that, that even though he knew that this would mean potentially ending his own son's life, he had faith that what would happen to make deliverance happen through his own line in Christ would ultimately happen, that God would make it somehow happen. He considered, verse 19, in fact, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. So let's jump back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, verse 6. It continues to tell us what happened here. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they both went to them together. And Isaac, at this point, who sees that something is wrong, said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, Remember that Abraham is certainly willing to go through with it, but he has faith that even if he has to, that God will deliver him somehow. So with that in mind, read verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Circle or underline that phrase because it's huge. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. in the pages of Genesis, is an awesome foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as the sacrifice. Sixteen or so hundred years before the Christ was slain, before the Lamb is slain, 
Here is a faithful man who was promised a son from whom would come that same lamb, who is picturing for us even today, as we read Genesis, how God himself would provide a sacrifice for us. So in the pages of Genesis is the gospel. Isaac as a prototype of Christ. So, so contrary to the pagan religions of the day, contrary to the polytheism of the day, which demanded a, a bloody self-sacrifice, a sacrifice of oneself to appease the little g-gods, contrary to any form of self-righteousness that works its way up to God, this is a God who sacrifices himself for you. And it's foreshadowed in the book of Genesis, in the person of Isaac, from the offspring of Abraham, called out of a, of a pagan and polytheistic world to be fruitful and multiply. We could go back person by person by person to the very beginning of creation, where in the mind of God, he purposed to make you because he wants to know you and he wants to love you. And, and he could not have that relationship with you if he did not send himself as the sacrifice. And it's written in the pages of Genesis. And it sets the tone for all of Scripture. We've just sort of scratched the surface today and with a few highlights. And, and this is a message that could be weeks of, of things in Genesis that speak of the Messiah predicted. The Messiah who would come, the anointed one who would come to deliver us from our own prison of death and sin. And so like, like the book of Genesis, like the book of Genesis and all of Scripture, your life is all about Jesus Christ. Like the witness of the pages of Scripture, it's either all about Jesus Christ or it's nothing. You either wake up in the morning and rise to meet a new day because you love Jesus or you have nothing. Either you read Scripture to learn about the Savior of your sins or you read Scripture for nothing. And the message is all throughout Genesis. You work, you eat, you talk, you move, you breathe, you sing because of Jesus. So either Jesus Christ is everything or he is nothing. And scripture demands that there is no in between. Either all of the promises of God are yes in Christ or they are no. Which means it is so clearly given to us on a written page for us to know and to follow. Which means that it's time to stop playing around with your life. As if it's an acceptable response to the Lord of the universe to live sort of half-heartedly. As if it's an acceptable response to the Lord of the universe who made you to live half-hearted and fearful lives where our petty pursuits rule our hearts. 
the witness of Scripture is that there is no halfway, no in-between, no lukewarm, no occasional following of Jesus as Lord. Either He is Lord of your life, or He is nothing. So consider yourself having been told from the witness of the pages of Genesis and the preaching of the Gospel. Consider yourself having been told either he is absolute Lord of everything or you have nothing. Father in heaven, we we earnestly pray that you would reveal yourself to us as you truly are. We beg you to fill our hearts so full with your kind of love that we are purified of every ugly scrap of self-centeredness and ungodly fear. We ask that you would trash anything and everything that holds us back from unreservedly shouting yes to you. Lord, help us to gladly, gladly and willingly pour out our lives for you as you did for us. We worship you as Lord because all of our hope is in you alone. All of our hope is in you alone. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.